Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 13 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hypnosis friends and a very very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again in my own highly biased opinion I think I have a metaphoric shiny quartz crystal stunner of a show lined up for you today. In a short while I'll be sharing with you an interview with the author, trainer, therapist and all-round lovely man Dr. Brian Rowett. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis has featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Brian Rowett this week. I shall be exploring the way Brian uses metaphor uh, related to parts therapy and symbolism within therapy and understanding the underpinning rationale of this therapy approach. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate as well as doing its best to inform and educate. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with the related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's just hypnosisweekly with a hyphen in the middle dot com. You can add your thoughts, comments or make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm absolutely thrilled to be welcoming Dr. Brian Rowett to Hypnosis Weekly today. I met Brian last year while he was seemingly on a grand tour of the UK presenting information here, there and everywhere in this energetic, sort of boundless fashion. He presented and lectured to the peer support group for hypnotherapists that I run here on the south coast of England. We had something to eat and drink together before his presentation. I got to know plenty about him, such as the fact that he had been a professional Aussie rules football player as a younger man, as well as a doctor, anaesthetist, and that was before he travelled to the UK where he ended up staying and having a very successful lengthy career in the field of hypnosis. He has written books that many respect and enjoy and has trained with Milton Erickson in person. There was just so much I wanted to ask him and explore. I was delighted when he agreed to come and feature here because it meant that I got to ask him plenty more things. I do like people with a great sense of humour too and Brian is one such person. He's one of those people that I could sit up with at the pub lock-in and just chat away to until I fell over. For now, get comfy my friends, turn up the volume, sip on your tea and enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've been discussing, I'm absolutely delighted to have with me today on Hypnosis Weekly, the one and the only Dr. Brian Rowett. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much, Adam. 
So um, um, tell me, tell me, tell me a bit about how you got into this field. Tell us a bit about your background and how you arrived at where you are now. Would it be all right if I react to your one and only comment? Uh, yes. <laughs> my, my father was Dutch and the name Roet, R-O-E-T, yes. is pronounced Root in Dutch. Ah. And when we moved to Australia, the word Root in Australia means sexual intercourse. <laughs> as does many other words in the Australian <laughs> So my mother changed the pronunciation to Rowett. Ah, I see. So perhaps Very I am clever. the one, one and only. <laughs> <laughs> Good move by your mum. Yeah, I've, I've heard it referenced as root before, yeah. Um, I'm, 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 well done for bringing that in to this, to this conversation. Right from the off, great stuff. Um, I'm, How did I get into this field? Yeah, 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 yeah your background, your okay. background. Post, um, post rooting around in life, um, <laughs> um, um, tell us about your background, how you arrived at, at where you are with the, with the profession now. Okay. I, um, I, my life has been spent being reactive. Things have happened and I've reacted to them rather than being proactive. Yeah. So when I was at school, I played a lot of football and I was quite good at it. And I was young for my class. So I... At the end, at the end of A-levels, I got a reasonable grade and the headmaster called me in and said, I think you should stay another year to learn to be a leader because you're very young. So my parents and I discussed it and we said, OK, so I agreed to do that. And um, we had a, a house by the beach, so I had a short haircut so I could swim and not get my hair all over the place. And I went back to school on the first day and collected my books from the bursar. Yeah. And as I was walking across the quadrangle, other children came up and said, well, look at Rowett, he's in trouble with his short haircut. And I felt <laughs> uncomfortable. So I went to the headmaster and said, I don't actually think I want to spend another year. And he said, that's fine. What would you like to do? And I said, well, I'd like to go to the university. And he said, well, what do you want to study? And I said, well, I really don't know. And he said, well, go up to the university today and have a look at a few of the different places and see what you'd like. So I went up that day and went to uh, architecture and dentistry and medicine and I could get into medicine. So I said, OK, I'll have a go at medicine. So that's how I became a doctor, not because I care for the sick, but because I had a short haircut. <laughs> so, so my life has been spent like that, um, doing different things, following what happened. Yes. And, um, I was... I became a general practitioner and then I became an anaesthetist as well. So I did general practice in the morning and the people drove me mad by talking too much. And then at anaesthetics in the afternoon, I was driven mad because no one spoke at all. <laughs> it worked out as a pretty good balance. And then we had in Australia a thing called boozy weekends where some doctors get together and they go to a hotel in the country and they talk about a subject and have a drink at the same time. Yeah. So I went up to one of those which is on dermatology, skin disease. Right. And when I got there, I found I'd made a mistake. It was on hypnosis. So I listened to the professor and he talked about hypnosis and demonstrated it and said I should buy a book on hypnosis uh, by John Hartland um, yeah. and also make a pendulum. And so if I had a dog or a cat, if anyone that had a dog or a cat, they'd swing the pendulum and that would hypnotize the dog or cat. So it's <laughs> on them. So I made this pendulum 
and I had a dog and I swung the pendulum in front of it and just walked away and then I did it in front of the cat and it scratched me. So I thought, <laughs> this is not for me. So I put them in a drawer with the book and went back to my general practice. And about a month later, a patient of mine came in saying she was studying Italian and when she was studying it at home, she knew the words, but when she went to the class, she couldn't remember them. Could I help? And I said to her, well, I've studied this hypnosis. It, it didn't work for the dog or the cat, but we could give it a try with you. And she said, yeah, let's have a go. And so I got the book out and I couldn't find anything about studying Italian, but it had a relaxation chapter in it. So I read that to her and she came back saying it had helped her a great deal. And then she referred a patient to me who had migraine. And I again read from the book and it helped her. And then I suddenly became obsessed with it. It was a real passion. Yeah. And I'd hypnotize everything and talk about it and went to study it and all sorts of things took over from me. So I let go of the anesthetics and just did hypnosis and general practice. And I, it really worked because if I saw patients in the general practice that were tense or stressed, I could recommend them to come and see me and learn to relax. Great. And I also looked after women during their pregnancy and delivered their babies so I could teach them during the nine months how to relax and then yeah. hypnosis during the, during the delivery. So it worked out really well. Yeah. And then a friend of mine said uh, he'd studied with Milton Erickson, why don't I go over there and study? So we happened to be going to America on holiday and I wrote to him and he said, yes, come and work with me or have a workshop with me. So I did that and that was great. Yeah. And one of the things that he, he did was to say uh, to the group, go and walk up Squaw Peak, which was a small mountain nearby in Phoenix, and you'll learn something very important about yourself. So yeah. there was a group of us who went there in the morning and we walked up and they, were, they got quite a way ahead of me. And I thought, oh, I better catch up with them. And then I stopped and thought, no, I'm going to do it my own way. And I walked up my way and got to them at the top. And that's sort of been my motto ever since, just to do things my way. So the way I practice hypnosis or the way I run my practice is really my way. And it, it works for me. I'm not Ericsson, so I can't do it his way. But uh, and did did Ericsson say to you that that was the right the right thing that you learned the right thing from that? It wasn't discussed. He he was a very old man, and he his speech was he had a speech impediment. And if you asked him a question, he talked for about an hour. So I was loath to <laughs> ask any questions. During the workshop, I went to sleep quite a lot because it was hot and because he talked a lot. I may have been in a trance, but I don't think so. But I found him an amazing man and his work's amazing and I read a lot of his books. So he certainly, I think he, you know, his, his caliber that he's recognized now is certainly warranted. Yeah, yeah. And, and with regards to, uh, I mean, just upon one of the points that you mentioned there about being a doctor um, yeah. and being a doctor in the mornings and then being able to help some of your patients um, in other ways with, with the hypnosis. Do you think that the fact that you were a doctor and held um, with the kind of recognition and respect that doctors tend to get in Western societies aided the, the, the hypnotic response and the hypnotic process I for you? I certainly think it did. I, I, it did one, um, one thing for sure, people come to a doctor uh, sooner than they'd go to someone who's not a doctor. Absolutely. Because yeah. they have a belief that doctors are something special, which I don't think they are, but that's the belief they have. And I think me being their GP, and I say to them, look, come and we'll do this hypnosis, 
then I think that has a much better effect than if I was just a stranger that they knocked on the door and said, can I see you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And, um, um, you, you know, the, the, the perceived level of credibility and expectation is something that, uh, you know, I certainly speak to all of my students and graduates about, about doing whatever they can to develop that, um, yeah. to, to, to aid the process and the therapeutic relationship. So, um, with regards to hypnosis specifically then, Brian, um, um, how, how do you define it, you know, and, and, and how did you kind of arrive at that definition? Because, I mean, you've had a, you've had a, long, um, a long career in this field. Um, you know, do, do you explain hypnosis to your clients? And if so, you know, how, how do you do that? Um, um, yeah, the, the definition of hypnosis in, okay. in, in your terms. Okay, I've got the reverse, Adam. I, when I was in Australia, I was very keen on hypnosis and I had put on my door in my room outside into the waiting room was a, a, a drawing of a magician in a cloak with a, you know, a black hat and stuff. Yeah. And, and, and underneath I put quiet hypnotist at work as a sort of a joke. <laughs> yeah. And that was my attitude, and that's the attitude of the Australians. When I came to England, I had a little sign that I had a diploma in hypnosis in my waiting room, and people were frightened. They came and said, you're not going to hypnotize me, are you? So I got a, I sort of had learned to, that people are, are frightened of hypnosis or the word. And so I don't use it. I use um, relaxation or visualization or right. agination. I don't, you know, people come to see me and say, you know, do you do hypnosis? And I say, well, yeah, you know, I try and mumble a bit because I don't want them to think I'm going to be like on the stage. Sure. So I, I'd rather not be like that. I'd rather be open about it. And I do, you know, when I do the way I do hypnosis is very minimal. I don't do any induction. I just say, close your eyes and don't try. Sure. But they, they often, well, they generally go into a trance and they say, was I hypnotized? And I sort of try and mumble about, you know, they're going, you're doing that all the time. It's no big deal. Yeah, yeah. And try to demystify it and say this is a normal. So you kind of liken it to an ordinary psychological process. Yes, that's what I like. So that then they can go home and do it themselves without having to have the magician waving a wand over them. Sure, sure. I get that. Um, um, I understand that. Um, so tell me then, um, um, what about some of your influences? I mean, you, you mentioned obviously that you that you trained directly with Ericsson. I don't think there's many people um, um, around today that have done so. Um, um, maybe you could tell us about about his influence or, or any other major influences that you've had in this field, whether there are any books or authors that you think have taught you the most or, or teachers that have been the most influential upon you and perhaps some of the reasons why. I think it's a good question. I think I'm an iconoclast. It's, you know, I don't worship too many people. So No, no quite right. Uh, I know a lot of people do worship Ericsson and some of them practice their hypnosis sitting in a wheelchair so they can emulate him. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I tend to think that I have learned most of my stuff from the patients. I, I'm focused on the patients and, and I know how they are and I learn how to gain affect to them and notice their movements and their belief systems and their words. And so I, that's the main thing I think is important. So I'm with them as a, you know, yeah. in symbiosis. And yeah. I think that David Grove is one that really had an effect on me because he did a lot of work with metaphors and clean language. Yeah. And uh, I think that's so important. And I think that the, the main thing is to be comfortable with yourself and be empathetic with the patient or the client. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of hypnotists are too, are too focused on the induction or the technique or the script. And that I don't think that's so great because you're missing out on all the messages you're getting from the client. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Heck, if you're reading something, then um, you, you, you're not you're not seeing what is happening for that individual. You could have missed something important. Yes. Um, I was doing a workshop in Denmark last week and I was demonstrating metaphors and things. And I asked someone to come out and do some work. And she had a, a belief that having people change a picture is the answer. So right. she was saying to the client that the other student, you know, well, do you think it would be helpful if you if you um, change the picture of this situation? And the client went, well, yeah, you know, I suppose. So, yeah. so the, the, the other therapist said, oh, well, that's good. Let's work on the picture. And, and you could got all the messages from the client was don't go there. Yeah. She had a, a format of doing a picture change. Yeah. And, and we then she kind of was it was entrenched in that exactly yeah which exactly. which doesn't strike me as being wholly um, wholly client centered necessarily oh. um, um, one of the interesting things you said there that, that you know the vast majority of your influence and learning comes from your clients um, is that just face to face or do you engage in any kind of reflection or reflective practice or do you have a, a strategy as far as that kind of thing is concerned or is it really just the kind of what you're learning face to face and how you adjust to to each individual I think that's. A, I think adjust is the is the is the the word that I think is important. I, I I'm not very good with empathy. That's <laughs> my nature. So I've had to work pretty hard at it. Um, I right. remember when I, when I was training, I didn't understand people's feelings, and I remember the teacher saying, "Well, why don't you go to the airport and just notice what you see?" So I went out to the airport, and I came back, and he said, "Well, what did you see?" And I said, "Well, I saw." people with suitcases and some were getting on the plane and some were saying goodbye and he said well did you notice any feelings I said well no not really he said well go on a train and just have an hour on a train and come back and tell me what you learned so I said well I went on the train and some people got off and some people got on it wasn't what he wanted and I now I wouldn't do that I'd be able to notice all the feelings and the responses but yeah. I think that's so important because that's most people come to us because of feelings they come and say I'm feeling lonely or sad or frightened or whatever it is. So we need to know about feelings and, and we need to know about their feelings and how they believe they are or where yeah. they are. Stuff. So if, you don't, if you're not empathetic with people, I think you lose a lot. Yes. I don't know, you know, I think that just being friendly with people and being on their side and talking to them in a quiet voice and stuff, people go into a trance. You don't need to do much. Sure, sure. I think I, I, I think some of the basic stuff, you, you know, um, um, I ask people about, you know, their, 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 their favourite approaches to development of rapport or the working alliance. And I, I'm very often inundated with kind of techniques and things to affect as opposed to some of the more common sense things like, you know, being being congruent, being a, a nice, but being interested and having a positive regard towards your client, you know, yeah. stuff which you don't have to affect you know, which uh, which which then underpins uh, the manner and uh, of the communication and so on. Yeah, um, I think that's right. I just a couple of words about that. I think when I do see people for six weeks or whatever many times, and they're better, I say to them, and I've done hypnosis and I've done other techniques, and I say to them, you know, we've had six weeks and you've got better. What would you say I did that helped you to your friends if they asked you, and they think for a while and they say actually I think it's just having someone to listen to me right. and I that's a high proportion of people maybe 80 or 90 percent of people say that 
So I think, well, if that's what they believe is helping, I better do that. So yeah. I listen. And I'm also praising. I want to tell them they're good and they're doing well. Because generally they don't think they are and generally other people tell them they're not. So I say, you know, that's really well done. Yeah. And the thing I've learned about English people, which is very difficult, different from Australian people, is they have great difficulty saying well done to themselves. Yeah. Not, not, not openly even, in their head. They look at me in amazement. Oh, you know, that'll be blowing my own trumpet or that'll be terrible. And I think saying well done to yourself is a good thing. It's like putting a drop of oil on a lock that's stuck. It helps. But English people have great difficulty with it. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I'm, oh, w w with the number of clients that you've seen over the years, um, Brian, and, and with the, 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 the sort of ongoing use of hypnosis um, in whatever format um, it's taken, what have, what have been some of the more or the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed? With other people? Yeah. Or with yourself? Well, I'll tell you one with myself and then one with someone else. Yeah, I, please. Um, I had an interesting client um, in the la six months ago, and he came to see me. He was a re I liked him. as a nice guy who um, worked for lawyers who treated him pretty badly, and he didn't have much money. And he had a fear of lifts and a fear of trains and tubes. Yeah. And he worked on the fourth floor of an of a office building, and he walked up every time. And that was fine. But in four or five months' time, they were moving to the 32nd floor. <laughs> right. And he, he wanted some help to go in the lift. Yeah. He also wanted some help to go to work on a tube or a train because it took him an hour and a half by bus going from London into the city. Right. And an hour and a half back. So he had three hours traveling every day and he never saw his kids and stuff like that. And I liked him and I knew he didn't have much money. So I, I had a, a deal with him. I said... I'll, how, how much do you think you would pay to get this fixed? And he said, well, 500 pounds. I said, okay, I'll see you for as long as it needs and you pay me the 500 pounds. And if I don't help, you don't need to pay anything. And uh, so we agreed and I saw him over a number of months. It was certainly more than 500 pounds, but that was great. And I look forward to seeing him every time because I liked him. Yeah. And also because he did what I asked him to do. Yeah. One of the problems I have is that you, 70% of the people that are asked to do something like a CD, listen to a CD or read a book, they don't. And it amazed me at the start, it doesn't now, that they're paying the money, they want to get better, and they don't do simple things that they're asked to do. Yeah. Anyway, he did. So he went on a lift around the area and um, he, had to, he had to get, the office was changing on one Saturday and I was seeing him the Saturday before and he was nearly there. So I said, well, perhaps you could go before you go with the, to move and ask the people in charge, could you just go open the lift? And he did, and they let him. And he was fine, and he sent me a picture of him up at the top looking out over the Thames and in the lift and Great. stuff. So that was really nice for me. And yeah. he said, I, I talked to him afterwards. <clears throat> I talked to him afterwards, and he said... <clears throat> the main, uh, main help was not having the pressure of the time or the money. He said it allowed me to do what I wanted to do in my own time. Right, yeah. If I said he had to pay, he could have paid perhaps for three or four sessions and that would have been it. So I'd like to be able to do I I can't do that with everyone, but it just seemed to be a nice win-win for him and for me. Yeah. And yeah. I'm doing a workshop at the end of November and he's coming along to talk about it. Brilliant, brilliant.
So that's um, that one. And then there was one with Jeffrey Zyg. I went to a workshop of his and I was sitting next to a lady who was terrified of water. And she was a pretty nutty lady, actually. <laughs> uh, anyway, he called for a volunteer and she went out um, and he talked to her and he talked to her for quite a while. And I went to sleep, as I often do when that happens. So I didn't hear what he said. <laughs> Um, but then she came back and I saw her the next day and she'd been in the shower for the first time in 10 years. I thought that was amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant. All, all, all these wonderful things that happen um, um, while, you've, while you've fallen asleep, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take a tape recorder next time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, so, so, you know, if you could go back to those, those days when you started out, um, um, as, a, as a hypnosis professional, you know, n knowing what you do now, would you would you do anything differently? Um, and if so, what and w w you know, what advice would the person that you are today give to the younger you? And, you know, would you be kind enough to extend that advice to other hypnosis professionals or therapists of today? Yes, I think some of the things we've been talking about, but one would be to trust your unconscious, trust your inner world. Yeah. And if you're reading a script and following what you must do and have to do, then you can't really trust your mind. You've got to take a risk and just allow yourself to to speak, you know, or to listen or to respond or to not respond. So you, 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 you run then by your unconscious, which I think a lot of hypnotists are in a trance when they're doing it, and I certainly am, and it works. I, I think don't be too frightened to be creative. Sure because it's the creative part of the patient that's going to make the change. Sure. And I yeah. think trusting yourself, it's, it's, it's also knowing a lot. I think experience helps a lot. That story about the man who had a factory and the machine stopped working and he tried to get them right and he couldn't and he rang a specialist and this man came and wandered around for an hour listening to all the machines and then he took a small hammer out and tapped on one of the machines and they all started to work. So the owner was very happy and the specialist went back and the next week the, the owner got a bill for a thousand pounds and he was he thought that was a lot of money and he rang him and said, a thousand pounds just for tapping? And the bloke said, oh no, the tapping was free. It was knowing where to tap that cost a thousand pounds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, great, I, I, I love that, I love that. Um, that's what I would advise, to, to, to take risks and be calmer and just allow, know that the person will change if you support them. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, and, and Brian, tell us then, uh, where can people go to learn more about your work, to learn more about you, your work, your approach to hypnosis and, and workshops that are coming up and things like that? Well, um, I... I, I've written some books, so if they go to Amazon, they'll see some books that I've written. And yeah. I've written books about things around hypnosis, as well as about hypnosis, yeah. that I think are important. So one of them is about confidence, yeah. and one of them about feelings. And yeah. I think knowing about these things helps you to be a better hypnotherapist. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I mean, um, when, you came, when you came to Bournemouth and was, was a speaker here when you and I met, I know that many of the people in the audience said that um, your book, Understanding Hypnosis, was one of the first that, that they read that really got them interested in this field. So ah. we'll, we'll mention that. Um, I'm, I'm there's, an, there's another thing. That, uh, can I keep talking? Is it, yes, of course you can keep okay. talking. I have, a, I have a niece who's a fantastic sculptor in Australia. She's well known for, and she sculpts 
primates, monkeys and gorillas and things. That's all she sculpts. But yeah. some of them are 20 foot high and stuff. Anyway, she, um, she rang me and said she's coming to England and could I find someone who would hypnotize her to know what it feels like to be a monkey? Yes. And I thought this was a pretty strange request. <laughs> yeah, I remember you and I having a discussion about that. Yeah. So, so she said, can I speak to a stage hypnotist? So I rang a few and they, they mentioned this bloke who runs some committees. So I rang him and he said, oh, did you write that book? It was fantastic. And for me to think of a stage hypnotist reading my book is amazing because it's not really for stage hypnotists. No. But he, he found it interesting. Great. Great. And he said something since, well, he said, Brian, I don't think, you know, if we get someone to quack like a duck, it doesn't mean they know what a duck's like. Yes. <laughs> I thought, yeah. why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, 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 well, th that's lovely. Um, um, we'll put some links on the uh, uh, underneath this episode um, to, to, to various different places where people can learn more about your bits and pieces. Um, we'll be... Sorry, there's a workshop. Um, the the The... The website is www.brianrowett.co.uk yep. and it's a workshop at the end of November, um, on the 29th of November at okay. Regent's Park. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so go along, have a look at brianrowett.co.uk and we'll put a link to that. Um, um, but we're going to be back and we're going to be discussing um, metaphor, the role they play in causing symptoms and Brian's approach to using them in therapy in just a short while. For now, thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed that interview. Now, let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. The first story this week is that football club Millwall here in England have brought in a hypnotherapist to help players. Yes, indeed, former world boxing champion Glenn Catley is now fully qualified sports psychologist and hypnotherapist. He ran a three-hour workshop with players and staff at the Den uh, for Millwall players. Um, Millwall have uh, been on a bit of a bad run recently. They hadn't won a game since August and the manager, Ian Holloway, wanted his squad to be in the right frame of mind when their campaign resumes. Um, so he's taken a different approach, uh, a different approach in um, um, inverted commas, by bringing in um, Catley, who claims that his methods can help give the team, give the players confidence and alleviate their anxiety during the games. Um, um, Catley says that he puts his clients into a deeply relaxed state of body and mind before reprogramming patterns of negative thought and behaviour. Okay, what I'm interested in more than that though with this particular article is that the manager, um, Ian Holloway, said you know, that he, he thought that the players get too up and down and too affected by the stress of wanting to win. And he quotes, Throughout my career, I've looked at things in a different way in order to squeeze an extra percent out of people. It's a different approach, but did people expect me to be ordinary? We have to find a way to get this right. Glenn is a confidence coach and a great character. Him coming in is for the long term and will help my young players especially. I don't want them to have any of the issues that senior pros can end up with. I believe that you have to train your mind. This should be a huge part of modern football. Jose Mourinho has studied psychology, so he proves that. You have to be mentally and physically fit. 
And, you know, I love that he says that, um, Ian Holloway. I mean, one of the other things that I really love that he goes on to say is this. I don't believe that winners are born. I think they are made. Winners are losers who never give up and keep getting back on their feet. You know what? I think it's quite rare for, for football managers to adopt such an attitude. And I think he's a shining example. Um, um, Glenn Catley added, you know, you can be the fittest athlete in the world, but if your mind isn't engaged with your body, then it's irrelevant. Um, and I think much of what's mentioned in this article that really promotes the use of hypnotherapy in, in a professional sporting environment, it relates wonderfully well to that which was featured and discussed in last week's special edition of Hypnosis Weekly. There is another football story as well in the news this week. It's not quite as positive about the use of hypnosis. It's entitled Brazilian Team Tries to Improve Through Hypnosis. The article's opening line is... A second division team in Brazil is resorting to hypnosis to try and avoid relegation. Resorting. Why use that word resorting? Pa. So Portuguesa this week, the team Portuguesa this week, announced the hiring of a hypnosis specialist to work with the players, hoping that he'll help them improve their performance and lead the team out of their last place in the standings, which is where they are currently. And I think this is a great and a progressive move. I hope that uh, Portuguesa go on to achieve what they hope for. And I'm ordering a Portuguesa replica kit and you will be my Brazilian club team of choice from now on. Finally, in the news this week, I see and have read in a number of media outlets lots of articles that are featuring former Pepsi advertisement girl and uh, actress now who plays the part of Gloria in the hit comedy show Modern Family. Sofia Vergara is seeking hypnotherapy to cure her sweet tooth. The lovely Sofia Vergara, I would say. The only reason I mention this story this week is to somehow get the message out to Sophia that I am available. I will work with you for free for as many issues as you want. Please think of anything else besides the sweet tooth issue and I am here for you. Sophia, call me and I'll jump on a plane immediately. Links to all these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. Next up, we have this week's discussion. When I explained the format of this podcast to Dr. Brian Rowett and told him to have a think about a topic for discussion, there were many, many things I could have suggested that I wanted to discuss with him. But I let him choose. Brian told me he'd like to discuss his use of metaphor in his therapeutic work. He teaches this subject and uses it with many of his therapy clients, so it made a lot of sense. I was struck by his enthusiasm for this subject matter, and though it's not something I know an enormous amount about or use in my own therapy practice, I was really keen to hear more. I've seen Brian present on this subject, and the way he conducts his demonstrations is fascinating and thoroughly enjoyable. I think you'll find this week's discussion interesting. I know that I certainly did. So I'm back now with Dr. Brian Rowett uh, for today's professional discussion here on Hypnosis Weekly. Um, this week we're going to talk about, about metaphors. It's an area that Brian specialises in. I've seen him discuss it and present and lecture on this subject before. And he runs uh, workshops and seminars all around the world teaching this subject and how metaphors can be used uh, in, in therapy and, and in combination with hypnosis. 
Um, Brian, first of all, for, for anybody that's really kind of, you know, in the dark about metaphor, what, what exactly are we talking about here? You know, you know what, what, what is a metaphor and what, what is it in the context of therapy? What exactly are we talking about here in, 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 in the basic terms before we start exploring this therapeutically? Okay, um, it's a good question, Adam, because I don't particularly like the word metaphor. It seems scientific and I'm looking for something that is just natural rather than a, you know, a chemical formula. Yes. A metaphor, by definition, it's, it's telling you about something without saying it's like that. So um, I'm a lion when I go and play football means that I'm strong. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I'm a lion. It's not, yeah. it's not the thing that you say. It's, it's representing something else. Yeah. So if I showed you a sign <coughs> of a, uh, you know, the, the Mercedes three uh, triangles, you'd know that represents the Mercedes. Yeah. But it's not a Mercedes. But if I say, what's this? They, people would say, oh, that's a Mercedes. Right. So yes. It's representative of, of something else. <coughs> and I think another word which is similar and maybe easier to take on board is a symbol. It right. symbolizes something else. Yeah. And... Uh, why I talk about it is that my belief is that that's how uh, symptoms are stored. Right, In right. In simplistic term, you know, if, if a dog bites me when I'm little, I don't keep that memory of the dog biting me in my unconscious. I keep a symbol of it, which may be a black square. And we'll talk more about right. that. I, I certainly might recall the, the, uh, the dog biting me, but that's not the way it's stored. It's stored as a metaphor. It's stored as a symbol. It's stored as something that's representing the dog biting. It represents the experience of a dog yeah. biting, and then and then continues to to be representative of that. Yes, it. That, what what is interesting? What I believe from my experience is that when we have memories, <coughs> experiences, they're stored in a certain place. You know, if I go and have some dinner then that will be stored in a place and it'll move into what I call a forgettery after a while. Um, mm -hmm. But with things that are life-threatening or very frightening or have an extreme experience on us, they're stored in a different place. And they're stored there and they stay there for most of our lives and they cause symptoms. Their aim, because I talk to them all the time in hypnosis, is to protect us. Right. So and they will be represented as a feeling. So if someone is feeling something and I want to explore it, I'll say, let's look at the feeling, let's go into the feeling, and they say, oh, yes, there's this symbol there. So that's how it works. The, the experience starts. So the feeling is, is the access to, to the representation of it, that the symbol or the, the so-called metaphor, Yes, um, which then enables us to start to work with that metaphor. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So that if someone goes on a plane and there's a lot of turbulence, they may store fear of flying somewhere because, yeah. because the mind is trying to protect them and says, this plane could crash, you shouldn't go on the plane. So then when they go to the airport, they get terrified and they can't get on the plane. So they come to see you or me and they say, I've got this fear of flying. So that the, what they know is the fear. I've got the fear, and then we explore the fear, and we'll find the metaphor. Right, right, okay. Um, um, so, 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 
so that, that, that's 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 what you what you're explaining then when you talk about the role that they play in causing symptoms do you do you explain this to the client beforehand i.e do you explain to them the kind of rationale or, or the, the and the understanding or do you just get stuck in ask them for the feeling and then explore the the the, the, the symptom and the role that it plays I think it's a good question, Adam. I do it, but I do it in reverse. I just right. explore and do it, and I have handouts of people who've got metaphors and way they've been helped, and I give them that after they've done it. I, I think that if I'm going to talk about metaphors and symbols, they may be a bit cautious and concerned and not really know what I'm talking about. But right. what they, what's great about it, I think, is that they're very excited about it, and they say, this is amazing, I didn't know that. and. It's like they're finding something for the first time. And yeah. that, to me, means that's a good thing to do. Because if you're finding something like if you find a splinter in your finger, then you know why it's been sore. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I know, I, what I would do with a client, I'd say, well, they feel frightened of flying. I'd say, well, let's do some imagination. Is that all right with you? So I'm letting them know that we're moving into something else. Yeah. I, I could use hypnosis, but I personally avoid it. And then I ask them, there are three things that I do. I I, I, or three or four, I say, lean back in the chair. <clears throat> and for me, it's very important that there's a headrest because I want them to be supported. Lean back in the chair, put your feet on the floor, which is, they must know something's going to happen. If you, if you tell a client to put their feet on the floor, they're going to think, what's going on? Yeah. Third thing is close your eyes. Now, in life, I don't think there are any times where we sit in a public situation with someone and tell them to close their eyes. So it's an unusual thing for people to be in. They're now, they might feel they're not in control, but I say you can open your eyes anytime you like. And then I say the, the main direction to people is not to try. Yes. Because if they try, they come back into the conscious mind. Right, yes. I, I want to explore their inner world. And it's pretty hard for people not to try because they've been told all their life to try. Yeah. So they're the, they're the four things. Put your feet on the floor, rest your head back, close your eyes and don't try. And then I, might, then I would say, well, whereabouts when you feel frightened about flying, whereabouts is it in your body? And they will, it'll normally be in the chest or the tummy. Yeah. So I then would say, okay, um, would it be all right if we learn a bit about that feeling? And they normally say yes. And then I say, well, if you go down to the feeling and let me know when you're there. So it's a pretty simple direction. I'm yeah. not, not saying anything more than guiding them to go down into the feeling. Now, if they were alert, they'd say, well, what are you talking about? How can I go into a feeling? But in this state, they're following my direction and they go down there. And then they will say, yes, I'm there. And I say, well, what kind of feeling is that? So that's clean language from David Grove. That's one of his questions. Yeah. What kind of feeling is that? So I'm not implying that they can see it or feel it or wait or anything. But and they go, oh yes, it's a, it's a cold feeling and it's dark and um, I don't like it. And I then I might say, well, does it have a shape or a colour or anything about? It? So so we get this metaphor. This is the metaphor. We get the metaphor and they say, okay, it's round and it's dark and it's heavy. And I say, okay, well. Can we talk to this round, dark, heavy thing? Yeah. And I, I say before, they said, this is pretty unusual, but just let's go with it. And so they and I, I use these words, which are quite specific to not um, be too intrusive. Ask the cold, round, black thing, can we have a chat? Right, yes. 
Having a chat is implied that it's okay, but if we're going to question it, it might feel it's going to be blamed for doing something or whatever. And normally you get a response, it's saying yes, and it may say yes in a strange way. I don't ask how it says yes, but it says yes, and I say, okay, are you responsible for Susie feeling frightened when she gets on the plane? And they say yes. And I say, what's your aim? And mostly it's to protect. Well, I'm trying to protect her. Yeah. And when did you first become part of her? How old was she? Oh, she was six. And what happened then? Well, she nearly got bitten by a dog or something like that, and therefore I've come on board to protect her for anything. Yeah. And I said, what are you trying to protect her from now? I'm protecting her from dying on the plane. So that's how it goes on. And the aim is to help. The, the aim, I think the aim of these uh, feelings and thoughts that we have, have three. They're, they're to be accurate, yeah. up-to-date and helpful. Right. They're right. the three criteria. So we want to see, is this black red ball, black ball there, is that accurate telling her she shouldn't go on a plane? No, it's not. Is it up to date? No, it's going back to when she was a little being bitten by a dog. And is it helpful? No, it's not helpful. So the, the patient then knows this thing that's trying to help me actually isn't helping me. No. And no. Then, then we work on what would you rather have and rather than a black heavy ball. And they might say a, a blue sky, you know, and you say, yeah. okay. And then the work that we need to do is to help them change the black ball to a blue sky. Yeah, yeah. Now, um, that, that, that initial part there of the process that you were talking about um, um, resembles and, and bears some similarities with, with parts therapy and even, even sort of um, 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 uh, almost like a little bit of regressive type of technique there as well. Um, um, do, do you find there are similarities? I, you know, I, I, I believe that you've taught um, parts therapy in the past as well, haven't you? Yes. Um, um, it's an area that you specialize, as some of our other speakers have um, 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 here on Hypnosis Weekly. Are there, are there some similarities? Is there some crossover? Or Yes, or... I'll tell you what, what the story was. When I went to work with David Grove, he did amazing things, really amazing things. I was really the most impressed that I've been for anything. He'd take a client and he'd do something and they'd be going into all these metaphors with strange places and colors and words and stuff. And I thought, that's really wonderful. That's what I'd like to do. And it was labeled parts therapy. So for many years, I did parts therapy, but I kept on thinking parts as people, like the, you know, the child, the adult, and the parent. Right, yeah. I, I would use non-clean language. So, well, tell me about the part. Who is she or who is he or something? And so I was putting words into the patient's mouths. And in the last couple of years, I've started... I don't know how I made the change, but I'm really pleased that I did, to not do that, just to see a part as anything. Yeah. So it's still parts therapy. The, you know, the black ball is a part. Yeah. It's not in a way that's defined by me, and it's not in a way that's defined by the conscious patient. It's, it's defined by the unconscious patient. And so this this notion, well, at the beginning, you seem to be, you know, um, um, there seemed to be like some some negotiation between the metaphor, the the, the, the symbolic representation of the the issue. Um, um, there was some some negotiation between you know between you and it, for example, and um, um, that, that that I could see some similarities with parts there, um, yeah. for example. Um, um, is that um, is is that kind of negotiation um, um, how how this is then used to create the solutions, or is there is there something different or a different direction that you go in? 
I think negotiation is a great word, Adam. I think instead of therapy, I'd say negotiation. <laughs> I think yeah. I think that's what I do. You know, I'm negotiating with that part. Right. Yeah. And if the part says to me, bugger off, I'm not going to listen to you, then I can't negotiate. Right. So I'm very careful not to cause the part to be worried that I'm going to be criticized or to get let go of it. A lot of the parts, um, I know this sounds like Alice in Wonderland, but a lot of the parts are frightened of being thrown out, of losing mm. their job. And, and they're reticent to, to come and discuss things if that's what's going to be the outcome. Mm. So I, part of the negotiation is to say to them that they won't be thrown out. They'll be, they may have a different job, but they'll be part of the more adult client. And e even, if, even if it's a non-useful or, or unproductive, problematic sort of metaphor part. Exactly. It doesn't right. matter. They, if, you, if you can negotiate with them, they say, well, great, I was worried I was going to be thrown out. I'll, I'll do what you asked me to do. And, you know, I want them often, because often these parts are, are judges and critics and negative. And I say, well, I ask the client what they would like, but my guidance is if they could be a praiser and say, well done to the client, that would be really good. Right. In most things, if you get some part of you saying, you know, you're doing really well, that's very helpful. Yeah. yeah. So, so my negotiation often is to try and get the part to be a praiser. Sure. And they often say, well, I don't know what to do. And I say, okay, well, we'll see how we can, you know, that the client can help you to do that. And I've often encountered um, um, parts teaching, for example, and some of the metaphor teaching, um, where, where perhaps there's been um, um, a hidden benefit, but also that, that even if it isn't uh, playing a negative role or, a prob or creating a problem, um, that I, I, in those circumstances that the strengths of the part are identified. You know, it might be yeah. really tenacious, um, yeah. um, um, which is, is causing them a problem in one respect, but reframed, for example, could actually become a resource. Is that is that relevant here? Exactly. That's exactly right. I think that's a, a really good point because it is that. It's it, They have got qualities because they've been there for 20 years and they've you know been powerful enough to cause problems. So that what we need to do is to help that power be used in a way of creating solutions rather than problems. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. I, 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 I used to try and tell them to tell the part to, you know, bugger off, but it didn't really work. They came back all the time. <laughs> yeah, you needed to be more polite. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. I'm Australian, Adam. <laughs> um, um, and so, so is this something that... that um, predominantly is, is central to, to your work these days then and and I'm guessing the that it's you know b because it's done within the the sort of um, um, that the context of hypnosis session that tends to make it easier um, um, but is this is this pr pretty much your your um, primary modality of therapy now then I think it is, and I, I think it's, it's good to not have that. I think it's better to go where you go, and if that happens to be right, do it. I, I tend to guide people to that sort of method of help. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help everyone. It helps a lot, and they think it's wonderful, but then they go away and it doesn't last. So I think it's, it's that business of being wise and, and knowing lots of different things. That's yes. why. I, that's what I would say to younger people: learn lots and lots of different things, and have them that you can use them if if appropriate. And if it's not working, change. Don't stay with the one thing. Yeah. There's a woman that came to see me who was about 65, and she was quite frail, and she'd seen a hypnotist twice, 
at vast expense, three times right. at vast expense, to help her with her stress. So she went to see him and he said, well, you're stressed. I want you to imagine you're behind a brick wall and here's a sledgehammer and you should knock the brick wall down. And she went through the session, but she didn't feel comfortable wielding a sledgehammer because she was a very frail lady. Anyway, she went back the next time and he did exactly the same thing. Yeah. And she came to see me and I said to her, well, you know, what would you like to do to relax? And she said, well, I'd like to walk around a garden. So I just did some hypnosis helping her to walk around a garden. But that bloke obviously had a technique that he stayed with. Right, yeah. And I think that's very limiting. And I think my advice to younger people, learn as many different things that, as you can and, and do the ones that you like and have alternatives if what you're doing isn't working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, um, and um, um, with regards to then, I, I mean, do, do people sometimes do people sometimes ever struggle? Do you think to 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 access their metaphors? Yes, I think there's a range. I, I, this is an, again an interesting fact. There's a range of visualization where people can be really um, very visual and see it very clearly, and to those that can't see it at all. And I'm one that can't see it at all. I can't visualize anything. I can only see black. Um, and it's amazing that here am I teaching visualization to patients and I can't do it myself. Right. But I, I get an idea from the person as we're going along how good their visualization is. Yeah. And I may say, I don't often, you know, close your eyes and imagine a man walking a dog and then find out what you know, if they say it's a man in a black hat and the dogs are dashing and stuff, then they're very good visualizers. If they say, well, I can see a shadow of a man, but I don't know what he's like, they're less so. So it's worthwhile knowing how good people are at visualizing before using visualization in this form. But you can do it without visualizing. You can say, well, what's it feel like? Is it heavy? Yeah. And yeah. they'll tell you it's tense. And, they, and the non-visualizers will still describe the metaphor. Yeah. And you can still work therapeutically with that without, without yeah. a visual component, can you? Yes, you can, but I think if it's not working, then it's not working, and I'd, sure. I'd then be aware of it and just say, well, let's do something else, but we're not making a big deal of it. Right, right. I mean, this is, this is fascinating stuff, um, um, fa absolutely fascinating stuff, and um, you're continuing to run seminars on this subject, and yes. people can find out about those dates and um, um, the nature of those seminars from your website, can they? Yes. And they can certainly, there's a phone number or an email, you, they can certainly ring them and get in touch with me and we can talk about it. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, um, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to see you present some of this information and I know uh, what, a, what a wonderful teacher and uh, presenter of this information you are. So um, anybody out there that uh, is interested, do follow the links on the website and um, get in touch. Um, um, Brian, thank you ever so much for coming and being part of Hypnosis Week. It's been fascinating, really insightful and enjoyable. Um, my thanks to you. Well, thank you, Adam. I think you should go on the radio as an interviewer. You do a brilliant job. <laughs> thanks very much. Okay. I really enjoyed that discussion and um, um, Dr. Brian Rowe is as lovely in real life as he seems to be throughout these discussions. Do be sure to go and check out the website and look out for Brian's upcoming seminars. 
On to this week's hypnosis fact of the week then. Now, did you know that the Abba de Faria, the man instrumental in the transition from mesmerism to hypnosis as we know it today, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, was featured in the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, um, uh, Abba de Faria was a Goan Catholic monk who was one of the pioneers of the scientific study of hypnotism, following on from the work of Franz Mesmer. Unlike Mesmer, who claimed that hypnosis was mediated by animal magnetism, Faria understood that it worked purely by the power of suggestion. And he was one of the first to depart from the theory of the magnetic fluid type notion to place um, 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 the importance of suggestion and to demonstrate the existence of auto-suggestion. He also established what he termed nervous sleep. In 1814, he bravely developed his doctrine. Um, um, nothing comes from the magnetizer, everything comes from the subject and takes place in his imagination generated from within the mind. Um, and, and that stepping away, that, that bravery, that makes him a hero of mine. Um, subsequently then, Alexandre Dumas fictionalised de Faria in his immortal epic, The Count of Monte Cristo. When the main character, the lead character in The Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dante, is sent to the horrific penal colony at the Chateau d'If, he encounters Abifaria, um, um, at first by way of soundings through the stone walls, but eventually face to face because they, they tunnel into one another's cell. And um, the Abba becomes a mentor to Dante, teaching him science, maths, philosophy, foreign languages, teaches him politics, um, the mind of aristocracy, as well as fencing. Um, but most importantly, he guides Dante and helps to channel this immense need he has for revenge that festers in him. Um, eventually, the Abbe also gives uh, Edmund Dante a map to the vast fortune that's hidden upon the Isle of Monte Cristo, as well as an opportunity for escape. So there you have it, this week's fact. One of the most important people in our field's history was also characterised and featured in one of the world's most famous novels. If you want a reminder of our ongoing competition, do go and listen to either episode 8 or 9 of Hypnosis Weekly and keep tuned for me using that special word, if I've not used it today, that is. In our next edition, I'll be welcoming our first solo female guest, Yes, indeed, my friend, author, hypnotherapist and business development expert here in the UK, Lindsay Shepherd, will be joining me. I'll be interviewing her and we'll be discussing some of her experiences with dealing with a group of super morbidly obese clients as part of a project that she's involved in and within her own therapy rooms as well. It's brilliant stuff. I have many more exciting guests here in future weeks. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating, and above all, remaining friends. And to repeat, all the references made in the discussions, along with related links, are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website, www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they're answered, addressed and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, anywhere else to help us reach the hypnosis field. Thanks go to the wonderful and very lovely Dr. Brian Rowett. My thanks go to you for tuning in. 
My name is Adam Eaton. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.